Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so my guest today is Steve Fuller. Steve is the Auguste Comte Chair in Social Epistemology in the Department of Sociology at Warwick University. Um, He's a well-known figure in sociology. He's most closely associated with the research program of Social Epistemology, which he founded back in the late 1980s. His scholarly output is prodigious, He's the author of more than 20 books, and his most recent work has been concerned with transhumanism, the future of humanity, or, as he likes to put it, Humanity 2.0. And he has published a trilogy of works on this theme, uh, including Humanity 2.0 in 2011, mm-hmm. uh, Preparing for Humanity 2.0 in 2013, and The Proactionary Imperative, co-authored with Veronica Lipinska uh, in yes, 20- okay. 2014. And we're going to be really focusing on the ideas in these books, particularly the last one. So, yeah, I'd just like to welcome you to the show, Steve. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you actually contacted me about coming on this show after hearing an earlier interview that I did with Rick Searle about transhumanism and politics. Now, Rick was quite critical of some of your ideas and arguments, and I want to give you the opportunity to respond to some of those criticisms in, in today's conversations. But I want to do so primarily by exploring some of the ideas and concepts that are contained in the last book of your trilogy, The, the Proactionary Imperative. And then this book has the subtitle, A Foundation for Transhumanism. So I think it's quite appropriate as a, as a target for our conversation. And it's a good avenue into your thinking on, on transhumanism and its political origins and potential. And just for listeners, as an aside, the material covered in this particular interview should complement quite well the earlier episodes I did with uh, James Hughes and, and Rick Searle. So... I would like the conversation to be structured around what I take to be roughly the main argument you offer in the book. And this is something you set out in the introduction and then develop over the four main chapters of that book. Now, you might disagree with this particular structuring or phrasing of the argument, and that's fine. But as I see it, roughly, you make two initial claims or two main premises, if you like, to the the reasoning. One is a, a particular characterization of transhumanism, which is the belief that we should indefinitely promote the distinguishing characteristics of humanity. And there's a claim that the distinguishing characteristic of humanity is embracing risk, um, kind of being proactionary towards the future. And this then gives you the, the claim that proactionary uh, reasoning is foundational to transhumanism. So just as an initial question, do you agree with that characterization of the argument or do you think it, you have a different uh, take on, on what the main argument you were offering in that book was? 
Um, I think it's it's accurate. I think in a way I would contextualize it a little bit differently, uh, but uh, I, I think it's accurate. Uh, it's an accurate statement. I mean, at some point you might want me to elaborate on it, but uh, I think it's. It, I don't think you said anything wrong. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So there might be problems with the way in which it's contextualized, and to be fair, the the structure of the book itself doesn't necessarily you know follow the structure of the argument as I've laid it out. Really, the book is divided into four chapters, first on right. this political reorientation. Can I offer a contextualization that maybe kind of makes clearer where I'm coming from on this? Because I think while it is true that the idea of being proactionary is a, a kind of attitude toward risk, which I think is characteristic of the transhumanist condition, uh, and I certainly don't have any problem with, with that as being true, I think there's a, a kind of um, a sort of preceding kind of set of considerations that makes risk the thing to focus on, you might say. Okay. okay. Um, and, and this has to do with... Um, this very idea of humanity 2.0, which you alluded to in your introduction. And I see humanity, that is to say homo sapiens, as we normally understand ourselves, as kind of a, at, a, at a crossroads in terms of two general kinds of ways in which we can go in the future. And one way, uh, which is the way that I'm against, you might say, to put it in, in bluntest terms, is what might be called a post-humanist future. Uh, and, and so transhumanism for me needs to be understood in relation to post-humanism as kind of alternatives with regard to where humanity goes. And post-humanism takes what I would regard as a precautionary view toward risk. Uh, that is to say, uh, if, proaction, if a proactionary view toward risk is one that is risk-seeking, you know, uh, and, and we can kind of talk about what that means exactly, the precautionary attitude, which I think is one that's quite familiar from environmental discourse, is a risk avoidance strategy, especially a harm avoidance strategy. And, and post-humanism basically says that in the future, human beings in some sense should underplay any kind of sense in which we see ourselves as distinct or unique species, but rather, as it were, rejoin the commonality of other life forms on the planet uh, in order to provide for a kind of ecologically sustained future. And this is where all the precautionary stuff comes in. And I think this is a very familiar, very strong kind of future orientation. And certainly when one talks about the issues surrounding global warming and climate change and all that, I think, and but, but also other areas as well. Transhumanism has a, a radically different take from that. Transhumanism is basically about, and it operates in many different ways, uh, but transhumanism is basically about amplifying our distinctness from other species, um, and in fact, emphasizing primarily through science and technology the uniqueness or the distinctness of the human condition. And this involves taking all kinds of risks. And it's not just, as it were, a proposal for the future, but it's in fact characteristic of what the what the uh, what the human condition has been up to this point, especially when we. If we take what has happened, let's say, over the last, what, 300 years, let's say, the period that's now often called the Anthropocene, where human beings are the main causal determinant of what's happening on the planet, this has involved taking enormous amount of risks with regard to reshaping the environment, reshaping ourselves, uh, both biologically and technologically, um, and, and there has been a lot of damage caused along the way. But my argument, and this is the argument I make on behalf of transhumanism, is that we have come out stronger on the basis of it, and that there is a sense in which, to kind of sum up what the proactionary principle is, which I think is core to the transhumanist ethos, is it's kind of a no-pain, no-gain principle. And so in that respect, it is a risk-seeking 
uh, orientation toward the world, one that's radically opposed to the precautionary one that is put on the table by the post-humanists. I hope I didn't go on too long there, but I just wanted to give you a sense of the context in which I'm presenting this business of, of risk. No, that's that's useful. So I think, I mean, the, the terms transhumanism and post-humanism have meanings that are sometimes conflated and are not um, distinct. So, for, for example, Nick Bostrom, who I think you and I would classify as a transhumanist, has written an essay where he talks about why he wants to be a post-human when he grows up. Uh, yeah. It's literally the, t- the title of the essay. So you're, what you're referring to there as post-humanism is a, a particular tradition largely emanating out of, out of humanities and social sciences that tries to problematize any distinction between the human and the non-human. So the human and the machine or the human and the animal. That's so correct. Down, downplays human uniqueness and human distinctness. That's correct. I mean, I w- let me say something, though, with regard to Bostrom on this, is I think part of what he's doing by calling it, by kind of using the terms post-human and transhuman interchangeably, which he continues to do, by the way, I don't think this is anything that's changed in his practice, um, is it gives him a quite a lot of wiggle room with regard to what he, uh, w- how he wants to position himself in what are obviously important policy debates that are with us right now with regard to how we... Uh, uh, manage things like artificial intelligence, okay? Because it seems to me that if if we think about Nick Bostrom as someone who who has the highest uh, public visibility, perhaps of any transhumanist at the moment, um, the way the reason why he has this visibility is primarily because of the of the the potential harms and the and the various fears uh, that he is and he's been able to conjure up, uh, not just himself and not unjustifiably about what the prospects are for superintelligences that in a sense gain so much autonomy that they can end, end up jeopardizing the human condition as we currently understand it. So in this respect, um, I think Bostrom wants to have a certain kind of wiggle room because I don't think he, you know, if you're going to make this argument that we should be con- uh, controlling and curtailing artificial intelligence perhaps, uh, you, don't, you don't want, to, you, in a sense, you want a sort of precautionary thing to be able to pull out of your back pocket at some point. To make arguments for safeguards, you know, for, for, for putting restraint on the development of this research and so forth. And so I do think that there's a kind of um, strategic uh, value, you might say, in terms of current policy debates with blurring the distinction between post-human and transhuman. Okay, that's interesting. But then, I mean, I have an argument or a point I want to make. I'm not sure if now is the best time to raise it, but since you've started with this post-humanist and transhumanist distinction and and tying post-humanism to a precautionary view um, and transhumanism to this, this pro-action review. One thing that I find a little bit, um, or one reason why I'm skeptical of that claim is that I'm not sure that post-humanism is necessarily tied to a precautionary style of thinking or mode of thinking. And also the notion that we should embrace risk or ex- experiments in what it means to be human and no pain, no gain. I don't know, don't see why that necessarily rules out the idea that we should be creating human successor species, like that, that our, our overall goal as humanity should be to create a post-human set of beings, such as superintelligences or artificial intelligences. So I wonder what you think about that. Well, I think it, the issue boils down to, I mean, I think you're raising an interesting point, right? Because uh, in the book, The Proactionary Imperative, I'm focusing mostly on um, transhumanism 
as a kind of enhanced biological version of Homo sapiens. And so I, I spend a lot of time talking about the role of evolution and the role of eugenics and all these, you know, the, the kinds of that side of transhumanism. And I don't actually talk very much about the artificial intelligence side. But I think the, the thing that makes transhumanism, you might say, metaphysically interesting as a position about humanity is that um, transhumanism is, uh, it seems to me, um, metaphysically committed only to the idea that the biological origins from which we have come, Homo sapiens, is a contingent feature of what, it, what makes us human. In other words, just because it has taken all these billions of years for Homo sapiens to come on the scene and, and, and we identify ourselves primarily, if not exclusively, with our biological bodies, even if they are enhanced in some way or another. And nevertheless, it seems to me transhumanism has a kind of open-mindedness with regard to the future ontological state of the human, which is to say that the human may continue as some kind of enhanced homo sapiens, but it may, uh, in the case of the, the transhumanists who are very interested in uploading consciousness and so forth, uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil being kind of the, 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 the poster boy for this, um, that in some sense humanity 2.0 on that vision of the transhuman is one where, in a sense, we start to think that the, uh, the carbon substratum of our being for the last several billion years is in fact uh, just a temporary arrangement, you might say, until we can come up with something that's more uh, powerful and more durable. And this is where silicon kicks in. And then we start migrating, as it were, our humanity from our biological base into these silicon bases, in which case then the superintelligences become our successor species with which we have some kind of, um, you know, not, on, you know uh, not only causal, but in some sense normative kind of lineage with. Uh, I think one has to keep that on the table, too. There's a sense in which um, you're right that the post-human imagines all these different kinds of entities and so forth, but what I think makes the transhuman distinctive is its additional claim that there's going to be some kind of linear lineage connection. Okay, It isn't just that we're creating a successor species, because after all, the evolutionary processes in biology are constantly generating successor species, but the successors don't normally... Uh, or don't automatically see themselves as necessarily the uh, the successors to what came before. They see themselves as different, and this is what makes interspecies communication often very difficult and problematic. But here, I'm t I think transhumanism is talking about a successor species that would still identify with its predecessor in a strong way, much stronger than, let's say, we as Homo sapiens identify with the primates. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's fair. So, I mean, I just wanted to make the point that, that transhumanism isn't necessarily closed to the idea of a post-human future, in a sense. Well, yes, yeah, they don't, yes, it, it, yes, that's right. I, I, think, uh, I think it's a mistake to think that the transhumanist imagination is limited to, you know, DC comic book uh, portrayals of Superman. Yeah. Um, I just want to pause here for a minute to ask if Pip wants to come in with any questions, because I know you have thoughts on post-humanism and transhumanism. I'm just going to add in uh, Pip Thornton, who's the research assistant on the Algoxian Transhumanist Project, who's listening in on this conversation, and uh, will ask a question as well. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, the only thing I was interested in um, hearing Steve's opinion on is um, sort of from my background, I come from a kind of lit literature, you know, literary criticism, social science, humanities type background. Um, so the phrase post-humanism to me sort of conjures up a kind of Catherine Hale's maybe yes, Donna yes. Haraway, um, you know, type imaginings, 
which yes. I'll just be interesting to see what you think about that that kind of approach. Yes, I, I mean, I think, um, again, you know, if you think about where the, because I, I, I was obviously back there in the late 80s when all this stuff was, <laughs> was beginning, um, and um, I think, again, to go back to the point, I don't think the transhuman and the posthuman were so, um, so clearly uh, distinguished back then, and as a matter of fact, the term transhuman, which, you know, typically transhumanists take it back to Julian Huxley in the 1950s, where it was quite clearly, and we, we may talk about this later, uh, a, something like a eugenics project. Um, it seems to me that that term had fallen completely into uh, disuse uh, in the period uh, of the, throughout most of the Cold War period, and that the term posthuman, in a way, occupied the entire space in the period of, of when Haraway and Hales and other people of that kind came to the fore. And so transhumanism as a term only gets revived again, um, I actually think, really in, only in the, the second half of the 1990s in any kind of substantial way. So when Haraway and Hales were writing originally, posthuman was the word to cover the whole waterfront, you might say. But I, I, I think that there, even back then, I think to me the... Um, one of the key issues that I think was very much back then uh, with Hales and Haraway, which I think continues to a certain extent in animating posthumanism, is um, there is, well, let's see how I can put it without being too crude about it. I think there's a kind of anti-humanism uh, that, that kind of sparked posthumanism. Um, and, and, and the anti-humanism uh, isn't, um, it isn't quite misanthropic. Uh, I don't think that's how I would put it, but rather a, 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 a kind of movement against the hypocrisy of humanism in terms of its self-understanding as an ideology, right? So, and this is why it's not surprising we've got two women who are, and, and I think post-humanism uh, post today even uh, is one where women are ver have a very, very strong presence, especially in relation, if you compare it to other fields of the humanities or the social sciences, post-humanism has a very strong female presence, and part of this was uh, part of this move to deconstruct the human, where it's really understood as a kind of a, a fig leaf for the masculine, and where the masculine stands for um, a lot of high pretension with regard to universality and and and, and rational rationality and so forth. But what you see in its wake is this enormous amount of oppression and and destruction, uh, often done by science and technology. Uh, and in a sense, posthumanism was part of, uh, in, in, the, in the form that you were asking about, very much part of trying to recover a lot of sort of the suppressed and missing elements uh, uh, from the Enlightenment. That, 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 in a, it, the, you know, so to, to, um, it was a kind of critical movement in this regard. And so bringing in all these other entities was a way of saying, look, uh, it's, it, there is no, uh, there's no guarantee that the world's going to turn into some kind of, you know, white male uh, utopia at the end of the day, but rather there's all this complication, there's all this complexity. And so posthumanism was very much part of bringing out that kind of complexity. And people like Haraway in particular were very uh, interesting, uh, at least at the time, um, in terms of, of showing different ways in which women and, and minorities could in fact play with emerging science fiction imagery of the cyborg, which in a way hybridized the human identity in many different ways. And that was quite a critical, radical thing back then in the 1980s and early 1990s, I would say. So that, um, I mean, that, that's really interesting. Um, but I would, I would come back and sort of question how that kind of post-humanism can be, can be sort of thought of as risk-averse in the terms that you, 
kind of put it? Well, um, I think if you look, well, I, I just look at, I, I follow the politics of this, right? I mean, the the people who tend to, like Donna Haraway, look at Donna Haraway's trajectory in, because there is one sense in which you could have imagined that Donna Haraway would become a real techno head once transhumanism started getting off the ground in the mid, late 1990s. But in fact, what, what, what Donna Haraway has done is to become more ecologically oriented, much more grounded in the earth, much more... Uh, into things that bring her closer to animal rights issues. Um, in other words, very much about preserving the diversity of life forms. And it seems to me that if, if your business is to prever- preserve the diversity of life forms, um, then you're going to be operating within a fairly precautionary conception insofar as you're going to be stressing uh, norms that uh, highlight issues of codependency, right? Um, you're, 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 go- you're going to start, um, you know, webs of affiliation, the, the whole... It's a very ecological orientation, one where all the beings that happen to inhabit a place are seen as co-equal, and none none has any more value than the other. So, so I mean that that's kind. Of, so, so I think as a matter of fact, and, and, I mean, in other words, if you read Cyborg Manifesto back in the 1980s, as I did, right? Uh, it, it, you know, you might have thought this was someone who would have turned into a transhumanist in the way we normally understand transhumanism today by the time you got to the late 1990s, but this is not where, where she went. She's gone in, in, in a much more precautionary direction, it seems to me. I think there's a sense in which, you, with a lot of this stuff, where we're talking very abstractly and metaphysically about the nature of human beings, at the end of the day, what you, want, you, you do want to follow the politics of these people. Well, how does this actually translate in terms of what, you know, what they're advocating at the moment? Yeah, I mean, just to... I want to maybe move on to some other topic, but one observation that I have is that the kinds of claims that you've made and that I've made and, and Pip has made are, are to some extent products of our disciplinary backgrounds and perspectives. So when I was talking about there being no necessary tension between the core kind of post-humanist claim and transhumanist claims, I'm obviously approaching that from a kind of an analytical or philosophical point of view. I know you have a background in, in philosophy, Steve. But you're kind of highlighting this sociological evolution of, of post-humanism that even though there mightn't be a necessary connection between post-humanism and anti-transhumanism or, or risk aversion, that's the way it has evolved over the past 20, 30 years. Yes, and it kind of makes – but see, to my mind, that actually makes the issue clearer, okay? Because I do think there is a, a lot of muddle. In, in the sense that I think even an analytic philosopher can figure out uh, about post and trans always being used interchangeably. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's important to not use them interchangeably, and it does create confusions when when people like Bostrom use it in a in a way that I think is uh, not appropriate. But as you point out, it might be a strategic thing in in that case. Mm-hmm. I want to move on though to the particular conception you have of humanism and the the kind of core human mission to yes. transcend, uh, towards self-transcendence. Now, you're very clear in the book, The Proactionary Imperative, with your co-author, Veronica, that Christianity is foundational to your particular conception of, of this in a human mission. So maybe you could talk about like, why you perceive Christianity to be foundational and what style of Christianity do you embrace? Yes, okay, that's a, that's a very good question and... Um... Uh, it's 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 very important. I mean, and here I, I was I was toying with how to actually begin answering the question. Um, so I, what I'll I, I'll try to answer the question in two kinds of ways. One from the standpoint of you might say where I'm coming from. It's a bit kind of maybe a little bit biographical. 
but there's another way of getting to it where you don't actually have to have had my biography uh, in order to appreciate what I'm saying. I happen to be uh, someone who believes that, um, that you know, I, I am someone who has a background, uh, um, a, a Christian background, not in the sense that perhaps people might think about, in the sense I was never really uh, an avid churchgoer or true believer or anything of that sort, but I actually have a, uh, a strong Christian educational background. And, and so from very early on, I was trained by the Jesuits. Uh, in the Catholic Church, who were very much kind of um, very intellectual, kind of propaganda wing in a sense, uh, aiming to convert people who wouldn't normally be converted to Christianity. So that's always been kind of their orientation. So they have a very sophisticated way of going about uh, doing business as a Christian. And these people uh, were very much stressing the fact uh, that uh, the, uh, the thing that's key about humans and what gives humans this sort of centrality and specialness is the fact that we're created in the image and likeness of God. And that's a very empowering thing to realize. And in fact, one could go further and say, look, it is exactly this kind of conception that has actually given human beings the kind of ambition that, le that led, let's say, in the 17th century to the scientific revolution, where you start to get people, most notably Isaac Newton, starting to uh, imagine that they can conceptualize the whole cosmos from God's standpoint by saying, look, it's governed by the, you know, this set of laws, by these sets of principles, and you can figure out what's happening everywhere without physically having to be there. Okay, that's pretty much what the project of physics has been. It's a very crazy idea, but it's been the spearhead of modern science for the last three, four hundred years. Um, and it's one that was born of a certain kind of conception of human self-confidence. Okay, uh, in the confidence in the human mind to be able to overcome its physical and empirical limitations, to be able to comprehend a world that, in a sense, covers everything. And so there's a there's an interesting question about where do people get this kind of mentality? Okay, it's not natural. It's not common to all you know cultures or anything of this sort. It has a very specific kind of origin, and the way I would put it is a kind of secularization of the image and likeness of God view. Uh, that you find most clearly in Christianity, but of course Judaism and Islam have kind of versions of this as well, uh, and so it's not by accident that this kind of self-understanding of humans, this very ambitious, divine-like understanding of humans, becomes integral to the development of science and technology. Now, that, so that come into it that way, and, and from that standpoint, transhumanism is just the next step. Right, transhumanism is just the next step, you might say. So, so if you you know, in sociology we talk a lot about modernity, right? The modern world. Modern world is often presented as the world in which science and technology ends up transforming everything. It 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 starts off from being a kind of scholarly pursuit, you might say, but it ends up reshaping the whole world through processes of rationalization, globalization, etc., etc. Capitalism, socialism, all these things are part of that. And transhumanism from that narrative standpoint is just the next step. So that's kind of the way I come into it myself. I would say for, for people who are listening and, and don't quite buy this, um, the, the way I would appeal to them would be to say, look, uh, look, at the, look at the sorts of things that people on the precautionary side say about the world, right, and say about science and technology. These people tend to be very critical about how science and technology has colonized the life world, has colonized, you know, the, the whole living condition of the planet, right? So you can start, where do you want to start? You can start with Hiroshima. You can start with gas chambers and eugenics. You can start with environmental degradation. All of these 
are the results of the hubristic uses of science and technology over the course of the 20th century. And they are not going away. They're, in fact, accentuating. Uh, and if any, and then there's, a, there's a, a strong chance, it seems, that this is eventually going to lead to the destru- destruction of human beings, and not only human beings, but perhaps most of life on the planet. Now, if you look at the actual, you know, there's that way of reading the history, too. Okay, this, and this is where the precautionary people get an enormous amount of mileage. And my response to that is, I don't deny those facts. I don't deny that science and technology is at once the greatest boon to humanity that has ever happened, and at the same time, the greatest threat. It is both of those things at the same time. And then the question becomes, where, you know, where do you place your bet? Where do you place your bet? Do you think that, in a sense, we have, we have kind of been too confident as human beings and we need to pull back and get reabsorbed into nature? Or do you think that we are clever enough and will be able to transcend our shortcomings and limitations to reach a kind of higher level of being? Well, I'm in the latter category, all right? Uh, I, I, and I think that's where the transhumanists belong, is in that kind of thinking. But the point is that you need something metaphysical in a way to motivate what is a very risk-seeking orientation. And I don't see anything other than the theology that I started with here uh, to actually give you the kind of metaphysical oomph, the metaphysical takeoff that would actually give you the confidence to think that if we carry on with science and technology as we have, that we will in fact be able to overcome our limitations. Okay, so I mean, there's, there's a lot in that that I want to kind of parse somewhat carefully. Um, let me just kind of put my own position on the table as sure. well here, because I would not be religious in any um, sense and would not embrace Christianity. Uh, I don't actually necessarily, as I would said in my interview with Rick Stroll previously, necessarily define myself as a as a transhumanist. I'm, and I'm also, I'm not convinced that the appropriate way to frame how we should make decisions about our future is in terms of, of what we should bet on. Like I, I have problems with a precautionary perspective and a proactionary perspective. I think I think having like a general attitude towards risk doesn't make sense. I think it only makes sense in in the context of particular domains and particular claims and particular technologies that are, are on the horizon. So that I just want to put that out there first as as being kind of my my background and grounding for my my perspective. And and I think the decisions that we make, like what kinds of interventions and technologies we should favor should be grounded in some set of core values, usually values associated with well-being and autonomy and freedom, basically like enlightenment, sure, traditional but, but enlightenment don't you, values. But don't you see those things as, having, as, as implicitly relating to risk in, in certain ways? Well, I mean, that's something we should get into, um, uh-huh. but uh, maybe we'll get into that later. What I want to talk about first is just the fact that you've tied transhumanism to Christianity quite closely. Um, but I mean, it's probably fair to say that the majority of transhumanists or people who self-identify as transhumanists are non-religious. Now, in my interview with James Hughes, I talk, touched upon this a bit, and he would argue similarly to yourself that there is a religious foundation to transhumanism and that most axial age religions are transhumanist in a sense, that they, they perceive there to be some kind of transcendent goal for humanity. And one of his claims, or maybe there was a claim that I put in his his mouth at the time of the interview, was that really transhumanism involves a secularization of those kind of religious ideals. And I think a lot of people within the transhumanist community perceive a kind of conservatism or 
a lack of dynamism in traditional religious views, because if the world is given to us by God and we are created by God in, in his image, who are we to tamper and mess around with it? Uh, so we don't have the license or authority to interfere with creation. And then kind of dropping the religious baggage frees us up to experiment more with ways of living. So that, that would be the kind of image of Christianity that I would have in mind. No, no I think that's wrong. I mean, okay. um, and, and, and if you go, I mean, here I would make reference to a, a very, very good uh, contemporary historian of science and, and uh, religion by the name of Peter Harrison, an uh, 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 Australian who uh, actually held for a while the chair in science and religion at Oxford. Um, and um, I think the thing you got to put your finger on with regard to Christianity that makes a difference and certainly made a difference historically during in, in propelling the scientific revolution was the awareness of original sin, okay? Um, and what so 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 in the Christian story, right? Human beings actually begin in something like a godlike state, but of course there's a fall that takes place because Adam does something wrong, uh, and and one can parse that out in many different ways. Um, I think saying that he disobeyed God is kind of a, a a wrong way of actually understanding what he did. But in any case, it led to a fall, um, and and what that meant was that for the rest of time, human beings are, in a sense, um, in, have an awareness of their fallen state. In other words, they, each generation of humans is born with the idea that they had been so much better, and, and then the question becomes, can they be much better in the future? Can they go back to this divine state? And so the scientific revolution basically is, becomes a kind of certain way of reading this problem where science and technology become part of the instruments of human redemption. Okay, um, and again, there's a lot of complexity to this in terms of what's God, God's involvement in this, directly, indirectly, whatever. But the point is, uh, one of the things that the doctrine of original sin does to Christians in the early modern era is to make them profoundly dissatisfied with the state of the world, and that there needs to be some kind of improvement somehow, uh, and that as long as the world is the way it is, uh, that they, they will remain in this fallen state. So even if even if they are able to live comfortable lives, even if they are able to be at one with their neighbors and and with uh, and with the other creatures of the earth, that is insufficient. There is something deeper that in some way needs to be remedied, and this is where the point about science and technology comes in. Because what you can see very early on in the 17th century is that people are thinking about science and technology sort of as prosthetics or enhancements to enable humans to reach various higher levels of consciousness, you know, extending one's eyes, you know, to be able through uh, telescopes. I mean, you know, you, you can go through the whole list of these things. There were, all, there were a lot of theological justifications for this stuff. And, and so the question, then, you know, so, so you need a kind of motivation to actually get people to what amounts to creating an enormous amount of artifice in their environments and to reinvest their value from the, the natural things they find around them to these kind of constructed things that they are now claiming delivers them new forms of knowledge they never had before. I think one here needs to be, um, be more sensitive to um, the kind of unique status of science and technology uh, among all the things that human beings do to live in the world. It really kind of puts us in a very artificial position, and then the question becomes, why do we need this artifice? Okay, And we need this artifice, the answer from the Christian standpoint is because we're fallen creatures, we're not good enough. 
And that is, I think, a really important motivational thing, especially in the early modern period where you were making this transition. But once science and technology prove themselves in some sense, right, then the, the theological justification isn't so necessary. It becomes like the ladder you can kick off once you've reached the top. I think that's kind of what secularization eventually did. But, but I do think you have to motivate this in the very beginning. Yeah, I'm, I'd be a little bit skeptical of, of reading kind of very clear causal pathways between particular kind of Christian doctrines or conceptions of, of original sin and awareness of sin and social development. I mean, I think there's quite an extensive development of, of science in the classical era, which was forgotten about in the kind of dark ages and middle period. And I know... No, no see, I'm sorry. Let me interrupt you there, because I think that's, in fact, the concepts are there. I'm not going to deny this. You're talking about the Greek world, Roman world, these kinds of places, especially the Greek world. The concepts, a lot of the concepts are there that are foundational to the early modern period. There's no doubt, nobody denies this. I think the thing you need to look at, though, when you look at the way in which Greek science, and, and, and especially Greek science and mathematics developed, was what was the spirit in which they were developing this stuff? Okay, These guys were not about world transformation. They were basically just doing highbrow entertainment. That is the way you have to think about Greek science. This is, and and, and, and if, when you read what Aristotle says about philosophy, uh, and, you, and you look at the context in which, the, in which this stuff is being developed, this is, this is like men, mental gymnastics. Just like you have to keep your body fit if you've got the time to do so, you have to keep your mind fit. But that's really quite a different orientation toward, toward concepts of science and technology from the one that we have in the modern era, where we use them as a basis for transforming ourselves in the world in very radical material ways. Okay, I mean, you know, there's a lot like rediscovered about ancient science and or a lot of kind of revisionist Not just rediscovered, but redeployed, right? Redeployed. It's actually taken it it's it, it, look, here's how I would look at it. Suppose um, you know, we were to go, you know, we go to a planet uh, and we and we discover some uh, intelligent some some intelligent artifacts. Um, which have various equations and things like this, um, and we bring it back to Earth, and it becomes the foundation for a, a new civilization on Earth. It's entirely possible that what we have brought back is, in fact, just the rules to a game on the other planet. You know, like Monopoly. You know what I mean? You're like, Martian Monopoly turns out to be the foundation for what the new Earth civilization is. That's, I think, how you have to look at the relationship between the Greeks and the moderns. Yeah, the I wasn't... Greeks were playing games. I mean, and whereas we actually take them seriously. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't know enough about the actual historical record to say whether that interpretation is correct. But um, I, I mean... why didn't they do more? You tell me. Why? Did, I mean, the interesting thing about the Greeks, of course, which is one of the things that enabled them to be forgotten until the uh, Muslims rediscovered them, basically. Uh, is what they were doing. What they were doing was just, as we would say, mere culture, right? It was a kind of highbrow culture. It wasn't meant to be a way of kind of colonizing everyone in the world's understanding of how everything works. Yeah, no, I mean that might be true, but I, my point was that, like, even in the past ten or fifteen years, there have been a number of books released that suggest that ancient science was far more advanced and developed than we have traditionally believed. At an intellectual level, yes. Well, but At I mean, there have been the discovery of some artifacts as well, like early versions of computers and things that are computational devices that seem relatively you think impressive. They, well, I mean, I, see, I, I don't doubt that in some way the conceptions were there and that they have, may have designed artifacts. But it's like, the, look, 
it, one of the one of the great things that happens in the early modern era that is very emblematic of what the scientific revolution was is that basically Galileo takes a kid's toy, a, a version of the periscope, and turns it into a telescope. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is kind of indicative of the sort of thing that happened in the modern era, and that has a lot to do in a way with thinking about artifacts that we create as more than just uh, ways of amusing ourselves on Earth, but rather as thinking about them as instruments by which we can enhance our powers to be able to comprehend everything. There is a difference there. So there's, there's one, I, I think as well, that like, like Christianity and religious traditions are probably multifaceted and there are different kind of expressions of them sure, occurring sure, in historical moments. Of course, of so course, of you course. Can kind of read, you can read lots of different things into the Christian tradition um, oh, yes. No, no, no. You're, look, I'll be the first one to say that there was a lot of repression in Christianity, okay? Galileo was repressed, for example, right? I mean, uh, so, so I'm not, I'm not going to dispute you on this. Uh, I mean, I'm just saying that, that there is a kind of certain way of, uh, a certain strand out of Christianity, which actually is very promo- promotive of, uh, of science and technology. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't disagree with that, that there is a, uh, a strand within it that did, would, would promote science and technology, but there are also repressive strands, and there are also people who might pursue the promotion of science and technology that aren't motivated or influenced by that particular strand in, in Christian thought either. However, the one thing I w- did want to talk about, which is interesting in your book, and which I think may shed some light on this, is that you talk about there being different models for humanity yeah. then of playing God. Because So what, one view of like humans' role in creation is even if we are dissatisfied with our with the world, we're aware of our original sin and the need to transcend our present condition some people could have quite a fatalistic or grace-oriented yes. attitude towards that that it's not our job to do it it's like god will eventually redeem us and save us uh, it's about having faith but not about necessarily changing the world to improve our condition I, there's I another tradition a... that does kind of embrace that that model so yeah, yeah look i i think you need to draw a distinction between fate and grace they're not the same thing fate is a i take fate to be a kind of pagan notion uh, a notion Sorry. about uh, you know fate is a, a kind of notion where where nature uh, as it were is at a certain level indifferent uh, to the human condition and so in that respect uh, you know we can do whatever we want but at the end of the day you know fate does its thing and you know we're you know we we either survive or we don't so so this I would associate more with something like the Epicurean tradition in the classical world. In fact, a kind of an attitude uh, that, that actually uh, encourages people to, as it were, accept their fate, to be kind of resigned or at least to get into a state of equanimity so that whatever happens in the world, uh, people don't feel unduly responsible for it because, in a sense, they had no control over the situation. Um, and, and that's one kind of view. But the Christian view is very much against this, it seems to me. Now, you brought up the doctrine of grace, and grace is a very important doctrine. But grace is not uh, it, it, the, the it, 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 one one aspect of grace is similar to fate, uh, and that is the opacity of God to humans. I mean, I think that's one thing. So the point about grace is, it's in God's wish to decide who's saved, who's damned, how it happens, all the rest of it. Right? We we can't control that, but that doesn't mean um, that in some way we cannot prove ourselves of being worthy. It's just that we cannot do any kind of direct influencing of what's going on. But that doesn't mean there's no way we, we, you know, we can prove our worthiness. And, and so grace does involve a kind of opacity, like fate, 
but it's different. And actually, if you look at this, uh, I, I mentioned Peter Harrison earlier. If you look at the way he writes about original sin and the fact that you know a lot of the early science and technology came from the Protestant tradition, which has a very heavy notion of grace going on, um, the way grace was, one of the ways grace was ex- was kind of um, interpreted or secularized through the experimental method was the idea that you should do experiments um, and you should be very free and open-minded about what the outcomes to those experiments might be, and that even when those experiments go wrong, you have to somehow figure out that there's a way you could learn from it so that you could improve yourself. But that whole epistemic transaction involves no moment at which either God, truth, or reality tells you this is what's right and this is what's wrong. You have to make these judgments for yourself, but the, relate, but the feedback relationship is rather opaque. I think that's kind of, And so grace actually does play a, a, a rather interesting formative role, especially once it's secularized, in our attitude toward uh, the experimental method. Yeah, one point here as well is that we're, we're proceeding on the assumption here that uh, like the interpretation of, of the Christian tradition and the Christian doctrines um, on the assumption that you, you accept them to be true in some sense. I mean, for somebody who, who doesn't accept them to be true, it's not because they think that uh, Christianity gives us a better kind of normative perspective on the future. It's just because they don't accept the historical truth of, of Jesus's death and re- resurrection or the likely existence yes. of God. So for somebody like that, and I think that's probably true of a lot of transhumanists, again, who claim usually to be non-religious, uh, but the majority seem to, based on surveys that have been conducted by the, the IET anyway. Is there anything that they can embrace in your view and your vision if they don't embrace the truth of Christianity? Well, look, it seems to me that a lot of what I uphold in the name of transhumanism, in terms of what the bottom line is, is actually something that a lot of transhumanists do hold. It's, you might say the difference between me and the other guys is I do it for different reasons. So so uh, it's not like, uh, you know, is there's nothing in what I've said so far or you would find in my writings that would lead me to do the kinds of things people are often afraid of when they think about Christians having some kind of control over science policy. Right. I mean, I'm not saying close down labs. I'm not saying stop stem cell research. I'm not saying any of that kind of stuff. Okay. So, so I think the dif- the difference is at the level of justification. And the question I would have for my atheist colleagues, and I and I grant your point that most transhumanists are atheists, and some of them are quite militant atheists, I should say, is how do you justify these radical proposals that are being made? You know. So I give you, you know. Let me give you an example. You you may be familiar with Zoltan Istvan, right? Who was who who turned transhumanism into a political party in the 2016 presidential election, and was traveling around the country. Uh, and I thought I don't know how much you want to talk about him. I thought he was a very interesting figure. Now, obviously, this is a man who was trying to get ordinary Americans, especially non-religious Americans, uh, interested in transhumanism, and he made the kind of pitch that I think, in fact. Even the sophisticated atheist transhumanists make all the time, which is an which is kind of a, an argument that's kind of half about inter- self interest and half about inherent freedom and liberty. Okay, so in other words, I think if you're if you don't have the theological backdrop that I'm pointing to, I think the natural way, which I find profoundly unsatisfying, of justifying transhumanist conclusions is basically a kind of form of extended libertarianism. Um, where, where basically, you know, if the stuff, you know, if, if there's all this research potential out there to extend life expectancy, to enhance our capacities and so forth, then we should just go for it, right? And this is kind of, you know, this is freedom. 
you know, and if we believe in freedom of expression and freedom of everything else, then we should have freedom to do this too if this is what we want to do. And and I probably, I find that you know very uh, sort of normatively debased to be perfectly honest. I mean I, I mean if, and, and I think a lot of the people who criticize transhumanism, including the people on the precautionary side, right? I think quite can quite easily stereotype transhumanists as just basically socially irresponsible people who are just out for their own. Okay, and and I think that's the alternative in a sense that you you have kind of as the default position if you don't take the theological backdrop to transhumanism seriously. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm not going to be a good uh, spokesperson necessarily for transhumanism and for defending Zoltan Nisman's radical views since I wouldn't share it. But, I mean, my impression would be that that is, is grounded in certain value commitments, such as the commitment to freedom and uh, individual well-being and longevity. I think versions of those values are defensible and acceptable foundations, but then they would need to be balanced against other certain kind of humanistic values, let's say. But it seems to me that like the position that you are advocating, and this is really one of the big criticisms of your view that comes across in some of the writings of uh, of Rick Searle, for example, is that it's anti-humanistic in a way that ends up being quite similar to Istvan's perspective. Um, so maybe this is a point where you could respond to that criticism, but let me yeah, try and yeah. lay it out a bit. So within Istvan's work and within his novel in particular, it's premised on this, what I think Rick Searle called Ayn Rand on steroids, this highly self-interested view that your own individual existence and continued existence is prioritized over everything else. And this can justify any kind of um, uh, destruction of other human beings uh, and destruction of you know, great works of cultural tradition, like the final scene in, in Nisvan's novel is basically them bombing all the world's kind of religious sites, uh, famous architectural and cultural religious sites. I know ISIS is currently trying to do that. Exactly, yeah. So, <laughs> um, so, so to Searle and myself, this seems to be incredibly like disrespectful of things that are, are valuable to us. Like Even if you disagree with the religious doctrines of, of Christianity or Islam or whatever, you could still value the cultural products and the history and for aesthetic reasons, if for no other reason. And also, you know, we think there's a need to balance individual interest against, uh, sorry, self-interest against the group's well-being and the group interest. But in your work, particularly in some of the comments that you make about eugenics and the need to kind of rehabilitate eugenics, it seems like you advocate something similar insofar as, and I have a quote, um, sorry to kind of bring this up. This is in, in the book at page 63, I think. So it may endorse kind of mass surveillance and experimentation with the understanding that many in retrospect may turn out to have been used or sacrificed for science. Yes. Okay. So it seems like you end up with maybe a slightly more communitarian vision of that nonetheless warrants, you know, making some individuals suffer in the short term for long-term gains. And this seems yes. to be anti-humanistic. Okay. Okay. Look, first of all, what you what you said about my position is correct, namely the fact that it does have this kind of socialized character to it is a very important feature. I mean, and I would say that right there, that kind of really does already separate me quite a lot from Istvan and the people who tend to follow him, the Ayn Rand on steroids people, as you put them, um, is that I'm actually talking about this at the level of some kind of state policy where, uh, as it were, everyone is in some way implicated in the social experimentation. This is not just something that you can choose to opt in or out of. 
So maybe that even makes it a bit scarier than what Istvan's presenting. I, I, I don't know. But, but with regard to the charge of uh, anti-humanism, um, I think a lot depends on what you think humanism has been about. Because what the thing that I definitely do agree with uh, Istvan on, and I think with most transhumanists, is that part of what makes us who we are as human beings is the capacity for self-experimentation. There is no, you know, if a human, if to be human is anything, it is not to, it is to have, it is not to have a fixed essence, okay? Um, and this is why we always have to be very careful, maybe even very self-critical about certain concepts that get wrapped up with humanism, such as dignity, um, which tend to be very much tied to certain kinds of normative considerations about the treatment of the body, which get us very close, it seems to me, to the sort of essentialist views that one finds in the Catholic Church and stuff like this. And it seems to me it's this kind of species essentialism, which I don't want to call humanism. I think this is kind of a, this is part of, you might say, a kind of metaphysical or even theological remnant that we need to get rid of, that we should not, we should not fixate on the animal being homo sapiens as the exclusive locus of humanity. We need to kind of explode that kind of idea. I mean, that, and, and so, so to be human is to engage in a process of self-transformation. That is an inherent feature. I mean, modernity would never have got off the ground if people had over-precious views about the physical boundaries of the human. Okay. Um, and this probably brings us back to a point that you raised earlier on when I suggested that... So to me... Like my moral compass, my moral worldview is grounded in, in certain core values like individual well-being, the avoidance of suffering, freedom and autonomy, probably equality. And you suggested that you think that there's an intimate relation between these kinds of values and risk. So maybe you could explain yeah. what you perceive to be the intimate relation because I don't know if I see that intimate relation. Okay, well, look, the, let me go through your litany of values. You've given us given it to us a couple of times now. And, and, and so we've got freedom on... And autonomy are two of them, which I, you know, I love freedom and autonomy, very modern values, actually, Kant and all this kind of stuff. Now, what this has to do with freedom from suffering isn't, is not clear to me, okay? Um, and, and maybe you can explain this. So um, when we talk about well-being of people, of course, everyone is for the well-being of people. But does that mean freedom from suffering? I mean, obviously, certain sorts of suffering and so when we talk about the, you know, the category of torture, where in a sense we've already kind of loaded the notion of suffering in a very negative kind of way, then obviously that's wrong. But there are other kinds of suffering that are just part of the normal learning process. And even, and even death may be part of that. And that free and autonomous individuals should have a, you know, may wish to have an open-minded attitude toward their own suffering their, uh, and even their own death. I mean, I, I, and, and this is where the openness to risk comes in, okay? Um, I mean, I, I, so in this respect, I mean, this is where I do have a certain kind of sympathy for where libertarianism is coming from, um, in, in that I think if you over, if, if you sort of put too high a status on suffering as a kind of benchmark value, then you really are going to inhibit people from fully being able to develop themselves. I mean, so in this regard... What I think is more important, and, and, and something I, I, I write about in the fourth chapter of the book, I guess, um, is the business of adequate compensation. 
right? So in other words, one operates on the assumption that harms will be done. But then the question is whether people feel that these harms were wor worth having been done to them or, or that they have undergone them. And this is where the issue of compensation and recognition for these kinds of, you know, uh, episodes of harm are very important. But, it, but the freedom from suffering, freedom of harm, it seems to me, is not part of this picture. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I understand that there's a long tradition, but I associate the long tradition that is against harm and against suffering to be much more in a kind of Epicurean kind of tradition. One where you're operating on the assumption that we have a very limited sphere of freedom and autonomy. And in a sense, we should learn to be only as free and autonomous as will prevent us from getting into unnecessary pain. Okay, so it's a, it's a basically a policy of self-limitation. You know, endless damage control is what life becomes under this view. And so that's why I'm very skeptical uh, when you start telling me about freedom of suffer from suffering, and yet at the same breath you want to tell me about freedom and, and autonomy. So um, I don't know what I actually said in my, my description of my list of values, but I don't know if I said freedom from suffering. I just think I said suff avoidance of suffering Okay, a, okay, a okay, value. okay, sorry, I didn't mean to, put, but, it, it, but, it, but, but, but putting suffering on the table like that seems to be very jarring with, re with regard to issues of autonomy. So I don't see the tension necessarily. So my, my perspective is that well-being, which I presume to be like benefits uh, to, to the individual, I mean, there's a, we can be more or less complicated about what we perceive to be well-being, but I think you actually mentioned this even in the book at some point. Uh, the kind of capacity-type approach by Martha, Martha Nussbaum yeah. and uh, Amartya Sen, that would be one particular conception of, of, of what human well-being and flourishing consists in. And there are other ones as well. Um, there are kind of more minimalistic ones or more expansive ones. But the, roughly something along those lines would be sort of a core commitment for me. And then that obviously would have to be balanced against suffering. So I don't, I don't. So let, I don't let me ask you. Well, can I just let me maybe ask, finish one point here? Okay, I don't, okay. I don't disagree that you may need to suffer in order to achieve certain benefits and states of well-being, and I don't have an issue with that. Where the freedom and autonomy comes in, then, is really just as as a constraint on external interference in your own pursuit of what will contribute to your flourishing. That we shouldn't impose against a person's will a particular vision of of the good or or well-being. Well, I mean. Insofar as that's possible, I guess I agree. But I think it's whether you, what I was getting at was more the, uh, the freedom that you have to make your own mistakes. The freedom and how much freedom do you have in that regard? Okay, uh, and uh, so I, but, I guess the, the the classic liberal position would be that you you have as much freedom as is consistent with the freedom of others and the well being and, and autonomy of others. So you you don't necessarily have a freedom to impose suffering on on other people. But if you want to experiment with your own life and enhance yourself or embrace risk in your own life, you're, you're free to do that. Okay, okay I, okay, I agree. And so in which case then you must regard the kinds of uh, ethical guidelines and, and protocols that make it very difficult to have radical experiments uh, on human subjects. You must find that problematic. Um, I do. I do. And I talk about that, but I'm wondering about you because you seem this Mr. Humanism here that that, may, that maybe you think, well, you, we do need because because look, I mean, why can't we have a situation where you know some some guy hears about uh, that there's some radical ex radical drug that can alter your mind in all kinds of amazing ways, but it needs to be tested out on human beings first, and that currently university guidelines prevent the testing of these things, um, and but this person is willing to sign a contract saying I understand what's going on. 
and uh, you know, I'll do it. And if and and you know, there may be some insurance policy that compensates me if things really go radically wrong. But it's a it's a risk I will undertake. Yeah. So I think this gets to the core then of the the tension between like a proactionary perspective and a precautionary perspective. And what I was suggesting earlier on is that I don't I don't know if it makes sense to lean in favor of one or the other in general. My feeling is that it it tends to be like a decisional specific thing, or depends on the thing that you're interested in. So my my feelings that some constraints on experimentation are probably appropriate in certain contexts, largely because I would probably have fears around whether somebody can meaningfully give informed consent, and maybe a, a tendency for scientific overreach as well in certain contexts. But I mean, I don't have an opposition to experimentation with with drugs, and I've written quite openly about my opposition to uh, the criminalization of mind-altering substances, for example. Um, so, uh, yeah, as long as somebody can enter into the consumption of such products in a reasonably informed sense, and I don't think you'll ever be fully informed. I had another podcast actually about this previously, about transformative experiences and how rational you can be about your pursuit of transformative experiences. So I don't think you can be perfectly rational about them, but you can have better or worse evidence uh, for what will happen to you in those states. But yeah, if, if you voluntarily submit yourself to those kinds of experiments, then I don't necessarily have an opposition to that. But I would be I would have concerns about the context in which somebody gives consent to such experiments. And I think there do need to be certain protocols and constraints in place. So unlike some kind of radical transhumanists, um, I'm not necessarily in favor of like completely eradicating something like the FDA. I think you might need to reform particular policies, but I think having some kind of regulatory body in place is an appropriate thing. Right, but but should we not be evol- uh, evolving toward a world in which uh, people can actually undergo risky experiments through con- private contractual arrangements on the condition that there's adequate compensation and the results are made public so that other people may then have some additional information on which to decide whether they want to participate in such experiments. Yes, I mean, I'm not sure. Because that's sure. my view, okay? That's basically the view that I'm arguing. I mean, I think I would, ha- I, I, I would be reluctant to endorse it completely based on that bare description of, of it. I, I mean, one thing I would be in, interested in here is, like, in what sense can you compensate people for certain kinds of harms and risks? I, I think there are some uncompensatable Really? Uh, harms, yeah. Who decides? I mean, uh, let me l- let me just put it bluntly. Who decides something like this? If somebody's willing to take a lot of money up front, okay, from a philosophical standpoint, somebody might have a problem with this. But if the person who's actually going to undergo the experiment is willing to take a certain amount of money in compensation if things go wrong, would you have an objection to that? Yeah, I mean, there the concerns that I would have then would would be have to do with like coercion, um, exploiting somebody's situation if they're desperate for money for their family or something well supposing they're not supposing they're not desperate i understand the desperation issue okay so so clearly you want to make sure people aren't desperate and because first of all from a scientific standpoint having desperate people is probably going to skew your sample it's not going to give you kind of quite the information you want from a scientific standpoint so you don't want desperate people uh, because they tend to be of a certain kind but it seems to me that if you don't have a desperate person why can't uh, this person uh, you know and this person wants you know is fine with money. So this person may be, from your standpoint, kind of a bit morally crass, maybe too much of a benthamite or something, I don't know, uh, but, but, but nevertheless, is, wouldn't be classed as a desperate person. 
Yeah, let me say two things here. One is that if you're willing to accept that, I guess, suicide is permissible, uh, uh, it's a, an option that should be on the table for everybody, uh, yeah. which I do, then in some sense you can't oppose the kinds of scenario that you're sketching. Yes. Okay, but that would be in principle or in theory I couldn't oppose that kind of scenario. But in practice, I think, and this is maybe where risk and reward come into it, um, I think it could be acceptable politically and socially to have certain default rules that prevent people from doing that or or create a very high threshold of proof for somebody to um, make such a deal. Do you think that there's a problem uh, from a normative standpoint of money being used so easily in these kinds of discussions? Yeah, um, probably not in in a certain sense. Um, I've written a bit about this as well, about commodification of certain practices, that I'm not necessarily opposed to the commodification of of various choices because I think they... Like my, my view roughly corresponds to a view that was sketched out in a book called Markets Without Limits, although I wouldn't necessarily embrace all of the, the concepts in that, that book, which is that if you can do something with without money you can do it for money roughly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah that, that's basically my view but then again that's that's kind of an in principle or in theory view I, th- I think there are lots of practical contexts in which the use of money can be abused can be used coercively um, can ex- exploit people in certain situations and I, I think those are things that we need to take into consideration when crafting some kind of public policy or social policy and I mean, what, can, this is one thing that I just wanted to get into well, with sure. you about the like about your take on, on eugenics like the, and scientific exper- experimentation. What you're outlining here in this conversation seems to me to be um, kind of a, a fairly standard libertarian position on the freedom to experiment, the freedom to engage in self-experimentation. But yeah, the, the yeah. impression that I got from the book and some of the things you said even earlier on was that you were more communitarian in your perspective. So... I mean, yes. Do you think it's ever justifiable to impose an experiment on somebody against their consent or will? Um, to be clear, this happens anyway to some extent. But like, yeah, I. It seems to me the key th- the key thing. First of all, I think people should be encouraged actually to engage in self experimentation, and in a sense, there should be a social pol. We should have social policies that actually encourage this. This is not to say they shouldn't be regulated. So I, it's not like I'm against all regulation. Because one of the things that I think for in particular ought to be part of regulation at the social level is knowledge of the outcomes, okay? And this is where I think I guess I disagree most with libertarians, at least as I understand the libertarian argument. Libertarians uh, do not seem to be committed to the publicity of outcomes from the experiments and the sharing of knowledge. Um, I think that should be made one of the conditions under which self-experimentation happens, uh, because I think I mean I mean, and you see this at the moment that uh, when a lot of uh, a lot of trials uh, are being done by private companies uh, on, on on various um, er, early stage products, very often it's hard to figure out what the outcomes of those things are. And similarly, when we talk about drugs being criminalized, there's a lot of experimentation going on, but it's all done underground because nobody wants to reveal what they've done. And so you end up. Um, you end up having this kind of environment in where, where you're not quite sure what works, what doesn't work, under what conditions, whatever. And to me, that is diabolical. Uh, and, and so, you know, if you, wanna, if you ask me where is the social element, where is this communitarian element uh, that, I'm, that I'm promoting here, it comes at this level, right? It comes primarily at the level 
of of re- the reporting of outcomes, and this has a lot to do with making sure these outcomes aren't seen as de facto criminal, because then people will be discouraged from reporting. But there should be that kind of that. That's where you you want to pool together the knowledge, so you get a good sense. You're able to learn collectively over time what works, what doesn't work, under what conditions, and that's really one of the key ways in which you you ensure that people who do engage experimentation aren't just wasting their lives in vain, right? That in some sense they are contributing data points to the collective. And that is a very valuable and important thing. Um, and it seems to me in this, you know, in this line of thinking that I've got, I think that is very much in the spirit of the old eugenics, frankly. I think eugenics was very much, had this kind of collective mentality about things. Okay, but uh, there, there are several points I want to raise, but, you know, with, within, let's say, the characterization of eugenics within contemporary culture anyway there's a distinction that i always appealed to which was a between like um positive eugenics and negative eugenics i think it's quite sure. a standardized distinction mm-hmm. yes so like the problem that i would have looking back at eugenics policies in the 20s 30s and, and into the 40s and possibly later actually in some countries um, can't i don't know the full history of it is that sweden stopped only in the 70s sweden stopped in the 70s okay um, was the forced sterilization right exactly that's, that's yes so uh, i don't have an opposition to positive eugenics in the sense of trying to ensure good outcomes for future generations and i think people do this naturally anyway i mean most of the huge market of advice towards pregnant women for example is, is all oriented around positive eugenics you know oh of course that's where planned parenthood began av- avoiding certain consum- consuming drugs and alcohol and consuming yeah. certain minerals and benefits. So that's, that's clearly eugenic, yeah. eugenicist in a sense. But that, that's very different from the negative eugenics policies which involve forced sterilization. So when you talk about rehabilitating eugenics, I, I presume look, look, you're not talking about rehabilitating that kind of negative part. Look, look, uh, come on. I mean, uh, I understand this is a, a serious issue for people, but I think the thing you need to relativize here with regard to the history of eugenics is the, is, is the nature of the science and technology they had available to them at the time. Right. So from our standpoint and and even to a certain extent from their standpoint, right, the kinds of forced sterilizations and all the other kind of crazy things those eugenicists were up to in in the first half of the 20th century was simply a reflection of the crudeness of the knowledge they had. Okay, but it seems to me that all the same issues, including this distinction between positive and negative eugenics, is here too. now. It's just that the way we go about dealing with these matters uh, is much more sophisticated and much subtler. And and maybe that in that respect more socially acceptable. So frankly, I don't see us ever going back to forced sterilization because you can nip all the bad genes in the bud through some sort of prenatal, you know, uh, screening. Yeah, I mean that's happening already. Yeah, exactly. So so I think that to a certain extent, you know, focusing on what the practices were in the first half of the twentieth century, you know, is to fixate too much on what you know was nothing more and nothing less than the, the the science of their day right but i you know so 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 you know it, it, so in this respect we shouldn't be focusing on the exact practices what we need to focus on if we're going to continue if we're going to accept eugenics in our own time and i and i have no problem continuing to use that word i think that's a more honest way of dealing with the matter is that we are going to be as it were, importing the concepts, like the positive-negative distinction you just raised. It's just that again, it'll be reinscribed in practices and in technologies that already come to us as being socially much more palatable. Okay, I want to ask a question just about how then 
why you frame it and use the term eugenics, because from part of this discussion, you can see that positive eugenic type policies are in continuation to this day. And a lot of people are almost default positive eugenicists when it comes to making decisions around conception and childbirth. Um, yes. And it's kind of deeply embedded into, you know, um, the, the medical hierarchy and, and how advice is given to people around the time of, of, of pregnancy and, and childbirth. So why do we need to ex- or kind of rehabilitate and re-embrace the term eugenics, given its negative connotations? And let me just put this a criticism to you or a, suggest a, a certain degree of or a questionable strategy behind your re-embrace of the word eugenics. To what extent are you doing this? just to kind of make your position sound more radical than it is. No, I'm trying to know I I what I'm trying to do is to actually make give the position some historical and philosophical depth since we're continuing to live basically with the conceptual framework of eugenics when we talk about gene editing or anything of that sort, uh all the the, the pharmaceuticals and, and and now, you know, with the epigenetics revolution where we might even be able to biochemically manipulate the development process even after the organism is born all of this is this is stuff that eugenicists were dreaming about right and and the way they tried to execute it in the beginning of the 20th century was relatively crude but there is data there is there there, there is knowledge there let's put it that way okay so uh, oxford oxford university press has this thing called the handbook of the history of eugenics and 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 it's a 6 700 page book you can get it Every chapter is devoted to a different country of the world. And I mean every country. I mean like Latin America, Africa, Asia, everywhere, where eugenics was practiced in some form or another. There is an enormous backstory to this. The kinds of eugenics that were being practiced in terms of what was being selected for and what was being discouraged, radically different across the different countries, against many different policy environments, etc., uh, all sorts of political arrangements surrounding them. There is an enormous amount of knowledge there to draw upon as we start to craft our policies for the 21st century. A lot of it is unsavory, of course, with the Nazis in particular, uh, but also in the United States and in Scandinavia. Um, but it seems to me that we, 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 are go- we are going into this future blindly if we don't see the very clear historical precedents for it. Uh, where there were some very serious, thoughtful people who were involved in this project, which just ended up getting tainted, right, largely through the Nazi experience, frankly, okay? And and so, you know, I, I raised earlier in this conversation Julian Huxley, the person who coined the term uh, transhumanism, okay? This man was a defender of eugenics on against the background, a backdrop of a kind of liberal policy orientation. He wasn't a radical socialist or let alone national socialist, but he thought within a liberal society, within a welfare state, eugenics had to be an important component in determining welfare policy. He never changed his mind on this, okay? It just became less fashionable as we moved into the Cold War and afterwards. Uh, but nevertheless, it seems to me this is a very eminently sensible kind of orientation to have. Um, and, and it's just that one needs to get over the stigma, over the taboo uh, that's associated with it. Because I think at the moment, a lot of the discussions that we have about gene editing and stuff like that is historically very uninformed. It's as if, it's, it's as if just the novelty of the technology is driving the philosophical arguments rather than drawing on what actually is a long-standing discussion that has given us a lot of the conceptual categories uh, in which we're thinking about the things now. Okay, uh, let's maybe bring the discussion of, of eugenics to an end, because um, I think your position on it is is clear. Um, I, I do want to talk about Darwinism and 
uh, uh-huh. Darwinian thinking. And uh, maybe before we finish up there, I'm not sure. I kind of want to make a narrow point about this, but I'm wary of the fact that we might go a bit broader in, in, in the response to it. So obviously you have a, a history in kind of opposition to Darwinian thinking. Um, and this is how I first came across your, your name and your scholarly output was it, your involvement in the intelligent design case, the Dover versus Kitzmiller case back in whenever it was, 2006. Um, Five. <laughs> 2005, okay. I don't necessarily want to get into that kind of opposition to that you have towards mm-hmm. Darwinian thinking. I mean, it is tied in as far as your embrace of kind of experimental scientific programs or, or Protestant science, as you put it, or prot science. Yes. But in, in the book, The Proactionary Imperative, you make a slightly narrower claim, which is that transhumanists shouldn't embrace Darwinian thinking because it is limiting in some way. Yes. And you have particular criticisms for a paper that was written by Nick Bostrom and Anders Sandberg. So maybe you could just outline what your criticism of them is. Well, I have a kind of a response to this. So. Well, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I was looking at this thing over, uh, over again when I read your questions. Uh, and and uh, maybe the best way to proceed on this, because for me, that paper by Bostrom and Sandberg is kind of a prop for me to kind of lay out my attitudes toward evolution. Because my objection to Darwin, in terms of this discussion of transhumanism, is simply that Darwin, as a, a, in terms of his particular interpretation of evolution, ends up uh, operating with an overly limited capacity for humans. He, he grants humans too limited a capacity for transforming ourselves in a successful way. Uh, in other words, Darwin would never be a transhumanist. Darwin doesn't have enough faith in what human beings can do vis-a-vis transforming the course of evolution to, to enable transhumanism to get off the ground. Uh, he would think of it as being a pipe dream. And so from so, so that's the the extent of my objection to Darwin here, right? So it's not that I object to evo- that there are evolutionary processes, and it's not that I'm objecting to the fact that we've been on the planet for billions of years and all that. I'm not objecting to any of that stuff. What I am objecting is to is a kind of no, to a notion of what human beings are capable of doing. Okay, uh, and here I am on the side of Julian Huxley, because Julian Huxley believed that uh, first of all he believed interestingly that a problem with Darwin's account of evolution is that human beings are no longer special. That in a sense, if you take Darwin seriously, humans are just one more species subject to exactly the same evolutionary principles. In which case, what is the difference between humans and the other creatures? Huxley's answer was, we, whereas other creatures obey evolution, we actually know it, right? In other words, we have a self, we, have an, we can understand what it is that we are obeying, and that in itself gives us the capacity, and Huxley would say the obligation, to actually steer a process which up to this point has been without any kind of clear direction. Okay? This is the view of evolution that I hold to. Um, And so in this respect, what this means is that our knowledge of evolution gives us a kind of uh, responsibility, a kind of obligation almost, uh, in in terms of directing the the, the path uh, of the future. And you see... From that standpoint, when people like Bostrom and Sandberg talk about the wisdom of nature, you know, as if in some sense nature is giving us some clues as to what's going to work and what's not going to work, I think that's a little, I think that's, that's selling us short again. I mean, I think that's kind of in a way backtracking on, 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 the, on what human beings can in fact do and have in fact done with regard to our evolutionary heritage. So I see, I see you know, in a sense, 
once again Bostrom and Sandstrom just uh, Sandberg as being kind of uh, a bit mealy-mouthed about the extent to which human beings can take control of the evolutionary process. So, in one sense, you've kind of sidestepped some of my the, the critical comments I wanted to make on this, um, and you've well, also but, alluded to something else, m- possibly more interesting, which is, I, I, what I hear in what you're saying is that you perceive there to be some kind of connection between what we earlier described as the post-humanist view and Darwinian thinking, kind of this yes. denial oh, yes, of human sure. exceptionalism. Yes, yeah. for sure. Darwin and post-humanism go very well together. Okay, but I, I want to. I just want to make the point that I think you are unfair to what Bostrom and Sandberg actually argue in that paper. So it's a paper entitled "The Wisdom of Nature: An Evolutionary Heuristic for Human Enhancement." But what I take them to be doing in that paper is something much more mundane, which is just that some people believe that there is wisdom in nature, in natural selection, and how organisms have evolved, and that it's dangerous to tinker around with the evolved complexity of an organism because you might actually do it far more harm than, than you are hoping, or you may not benefit them in the way that you're hoping to do. There may be unintended consequences and so forth. Now, that seems to me to be kind of like a, a Burkean type of conservatism applied to evolutionary thinking. And yes, it, that's correct. Yes. And in the paper, Bostrom and Sandberg, to me anyway, are arguing against that very view, which is that there might be contexts in which it's appropriate to defer to the wisdom of nature and that tinkering around with evolved complexity is a bad idea, but there might be other contexts in which it's perfectly appropriate to tinker around with nature because evolution is not an optimal or optimizing process, which is what they argue in the paper. Even So they say that you should, let's proceed on the assumption that evolution is optimal, but then this is the optimality challenge. But then they have a long section in the paper where they describe ways in which evolution can be suboptimal and where we may need to kind of supplement it with human wisdom and insight. So I just I, I feel like there isn't that much distance between your two perspectives, and that uh, see, they I, don't really I, embrace I, the wisdom of nature view that you ascribe well, to Well, I mean, uh, let's put it this way. I, I, uh, I guess what I question is the ease with which one can make this distinction <laughs> that they're trying to make, you know, namely where, where, the, where the wisdom of nature works and where it doesn't work. It seems to me, I, I, I just don't think there's a principled way of drawing that distinction. I think one has to just, uh, in this respect, it's, it's a kind of a faith position one needs to have about what one thinks about nature. Yeah, and also, like one thing I take them to be arguing in that paper as well is that we have to kind of work with evolutionary processes to an extent, or with is maybe the wrong word, but like we can't make changes without knowing where we've come from or how we, how we operate and work. That well, that's true. That I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that point. Yes. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, they have whatever three principles in the paper for when you can distinguish between when it's appropriate to defer to nature and when it's not appropriate to defer to nature. And maybe you can take issue with those particular principles and say that they they don't work in, in practice. But I, I just wasn't convinced that there was as much distance between what you were arguing and what they were arguing. And I, I felt you were a little bit unfair in suggesting that they are strong believers in the wisdom of nature when it seems to me that they're not strong believers in the wisdom of nature. Well, one thing I was influenced by, I have to say, in, in terms of that paper, because I came to that paper act- actually after reading uh, an account that Sandberg gave in New Scientist magazine, where I think they first delivered the, a version of this paper in a conference in Finland. This, so, so this is kind of what led me to the paper itself. But I was going on the spin he was giving at the time of the conference, which was meant to be kind of uh, supportive of the kind of arguments that evolutionary psychologists make 
about just how changeable human beings can be given our evolutionary heritage, right? Because some evolutionary psychologists believe that we're sort of set in our ways in various fashion. Yeah, and I mean, that that might be a good kind of final question to pursue. And, and uh, this might be where your kind of religious leanings influence your position as well more than others. So I can see reasons to be optimistic about the human future and about um, human enhancement, let's say. But I, I, t- I tend to think that there probably are some ultimate limits that we will butt up against. What's your pr- perspective on this? Do you think it, there is limitless potential in, in humanity, uh, in the human future? I think, let's put it this way, I think there are limits in terms of what we can do in our current bodies, okay? So if we were to, let's say, you know, some transhumanists believe, and again, I'm sympathetic to this, that we would be populating the cosmos, okay? Now, if you think about how that's likely to be done, my guess is that's going to involve a radical transformation of the human body. We're going to have to somehow overcome the limits that our bodies present to us, even in what we would normally regard as an enhanced state. We may have to, in some sense, escape a lot of the very basic uh, constraints of Homo sapiens. So uh, it, a lot depends on what we mean by limitations here, right? I mean, I definitely think the biological body has limitations. Okay, so in a sense, we not, not everything that transhumanists would like to see us do, and which I would agree with, can be done through Homo sapiens. So this is where one has to think about. Okay, maybe we'll be uploading our consciousness. Maybe we'll be transforming into other platforms that somehow carry our are, you know, uh, digital versions of our personalities or something. Now, you see, for me, I would see that as an extension of the human, even though mm. we might actually be talking about, you know, a creature that is no longer Homo sapiens, but nevertheless carries some kind of uh, digital remains, as it were, or some sort of digital trace uh, of, of the Homo sapiens. So if, if, if you have that kind of rather ontologically liberal view about what a human being can be, um, then I think it's limitless. But if we're talking about Homo sapiens, even in a reasonably enhanced state, I think there are obviously going to be limits. You know, so 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 I think I'll see. This is where I think the notion of what a human is is still a very interesting thing to talk about, because I see it as not so closely tied to a particular material substratum as I think a lot of people who call themselves humanists and even posthumanists think. Yeah, I mean, would your view be more along the lines of? Like the philosophical conception of, of a person, or is it even yes, different yes, than that? yes? That's a very good way to put it. Actually, um, I have a I have, I've just finished writing a, a piece that's going to come out in a Swedish journal called Confero on morphological freedom. Okay, right? Morphological freedom, which we didn't talk about, is one of these core transhumanist ideas, which basically gives people the right to be in whatever form they want to be in, whether it be Homo sapiens enhanced or uploaded into machines or whatever. And it's a, supposed to be a kind of transhumanist right. And so I talk in this paper about what does that look like? What happens to the human there? And, and so I go to this idea of the person, yes. So the person, you know, in philosophy, when we talk about the person as a locus of moral responsibility and all of this, yes, I think this is kind of the idea that remains intact, even as we go through these material instantiations. Yeah, I mean, just one final question then on, on the question of limits. So I don't, I find myself actually not disagreeing with what you laid out there in this this model of well, there are certain limits within our current form, but we could transcend those limits. But maybe one of the points that is quite inherent in, let's say, the arguments made by Bostrom and Sandberg in particular and their research institute is that there is a danger in trying to transcend those limits too soon. Yeah. And, and that <laughs> seems to be soon? opposed to, well, because 
because of the potential risks involved. And that seems to be like, run opposite to the proactionary imperative. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's this is not the way to think about it. I think what we should look, what what needs to be done now, even though a lot of the stuff that we talk about in terms of the transhumanist imaginary are still pretty science fictional stuff. I mean, I'm the first one to grant this, okay? Nevertheless, now is the time to think normatively and in policy terms about how these things are to be organized, regulated, managed, allowed, disallowed, whatever, uh, before they actually happen, okay? Um, and and so this business about too soon, you know, uh, is, is, is I, I always, when I hear arguments of this kind, it's always from people who say, you know, our technology runs faster than our ethics does or something like this. Uh, and I say, well, it doesn't have to be that way, guys. I mean, you know, we can be thinking of, we can start thinking about policy, you know, possibilities, policy frameworks in which this stuff can be allowed to flourish. So we're not always caught blindsided by it. You right. See, I mean, but you see, I almost yeah. see it as the opposite problem. I actually think that I, I may have phrased it, the objection incorrectly first when I said, well, transcending our limits too soon. I actually don't think that's a problem. I, I think our ethics are fine. I think our technology isn't there yet. And there are, there are risks in employing certain kinds of technologies to pursue changes that you hope to pursue prematurely because those technologies aren't fit for purpose, let's say. I think that's where yep. the big risk lies. Well, okay. Well, there, there I think we do need to take risks because because it's it, it, and this is this this is a, a general problem actually with biomedicine right that 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 the kinds of contexts in which we tend to test things before they're sort of let loose on the public are even under the best circumstances too artificial to really give a good indication of what will happen once they're out there and so you just have to you have to prepare your so society to absorb a certain level of risk and whether that's through insurance schemes or compensation schemes or something like that but in any case, you have to always be vigilant of what the consequences are once you unleash the stuff in the public. But there, there's never going to be a, you're never going to have a foolproof technology. You really, yeah. you're not. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that, but I think there there might be greater magnitude risks that we want to avoid. But I, I, I think that might be a useful place to kind of draw the conversation to a close, since we've been going for over an hour and a half now. And I, okay, I think that last kind of statement also encapsulates what I would perceive to be kind of the core difference between, let's say, my perspective and, and your perspective. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I think, think it's probably so. a useful place to end. Um, do you yeah. have anything else you want to say by way of conclusion? Or? Well, I just I want to thank you for, for tolerating me for so long. <laughs> it's, uh, it, was a, <laughs> it was a pleasure. I, I enjoyed the uh, robust exchange of ideas. I, I always enjoy conversations like this. So, yeah, it was, yes. um, it was good to talk to you. Um, yeah, so th thanks again for joining me. <laughs>